well, I guess that tendency for all of us to think that, yep, life is a bit of a, a puzzle. There is a code to be somehow cracked or discovered. And, and if only that can happen, then everything will map out perfectly for us. I wonder if that's the attraction of films like Hunger Games and so forth, where, and there's been a spate of them, haven't they, along a pretty similar theme, where there's been some sort of an, an oppressive foe and, and essentially life is, is this fight or this struggle against an oppressive foe. But there's a clue, there's a key, there's a code. And if you just get a hold of that, whether it's some magical power, whether it's some, some moment of enlightenment, if you can get a hold of that key, that clue, if you can crack the code, then you just may survive. You may even be able to overthrow the oppressive regime and you may even be able to thrive at this thing called, called life. Those movies and that sort of a theme has a, has a wide appeal, doesn't it? And perhaps it's not that far from the truth. When The Matrix came out, I'm not sure how many years ago, but it was kind of revolutionary in the sense that, that it seemed to suggest that beyond the world taken for granted, there was another layer of life. And if we could just understand the existence of that layer, the oppressive forces that worked against us from, from coming to comprehend it, and if we could somehow undermine it, crack the code, discover another way to do life, then, then, then all would be well. It's a common theme, and I think again and again, it hits on something that's real for all of us, and that is to believe that life this challenge, this journey, this, this thing called life, which doesn't come easy to any of us, that there is a clue out there. There is a code. There's something that we're all missing. And if we could just latch hold of that, all would go well for us and maybe for many others as well. Well, I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about that and particularly whether there has been such a person to crack the code apart from the obvious Sunday school answer of Jesus. And yes, he did have a habit of cracking codes. He's very, very good at it. But I wanted to look at a different figure tonight, that of, that of David, who of course started out as a wee shepherd boy but became the greatest king of Israel. We're starting a series in 1 Samuel. We're looking at the anatomy of a leader. What does it mean to be a, a leader in God's eyes? But I wanted to have just a, just a quick look tonight at what might have been the key to David's success. What made him Israel's greatest king? What made him a household name? What made him a story to be told from generation to generation? As we look at the life of David, what is there that we can take away tonight that might help us understand clues to life, keys, how it is that we might crack this, this code and, and be a people that can prosper? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, I'm going to just cut right to the chase and not hold you in suspense at all. Samuel 
goes right to the heart of the matter. He records that moment when the Lord speaks to him and he says, How long will you mourn for Saul, the previous king, the failed king? The Lord says to Samuel, I have rejected him as king over Israel. So now, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so Samuel sets off after a little bit of, a little bit of uh, arguing there with the Lord. He sets off to do this. He doesn't know which son, and through a process of discovery, he finds out that it's, it's the one most overlooked, the youngest of Jesse's sons. It's the one called David, at least up, up to this point, a shepherd boy. And he's caught in, and, and when he is before Samuel, the Lord designates him as the one. This is the one that I have, I have chosen. And it seems that this anointing by Samuel is a critical part, not only of the selection of David as king, but the preparation of David as, as king as well. And I wanted to just talk to you tonight briefly about this thing called anointing. What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean to be anointed? And is it still a thing for today? Could you or could I expect to have an anointing, to be somehow anointed? And is that, is that the clue? Is that the key? Is, is, is that what is going to break the code for life? In the Old Testament, there's not that many references to it, but when somebody is anointed by oil, the first sense we get of the importance of this is in Exodus. God is breaking the nation of Israel, who are now growing to be a vast nation up into various tribes, and, and he designates one particular people to be priests. These were the Levites. And they as part of their being called apart and to be marked as God's special servants, part of that process is to be anointed with oil. And so they are marked as, as being a holy people. The other is in Leviticus 14, and, and it's a very, very different group of people altogether. You have the priests who have been anointed for this special special service, this special task. In Leviticus 14, you have almost the opposite. The priests within Israel would have center place, a very important position. In Leviticus 14, a very different people is being addressed, a people who are not even on the, on the inner of Israel. In fact, they're not even inside Israel. These are a people who, for some reason or another, have an infectious skin disease we might call today leprosy. And they are actually having to live outside of the camp. They would have to wear a mask over their faces. They would have to cry out, leper, leper, when everyone, anyone is in earshot. They lived a very, very lonely existence away from friends and family. There was no cure for this disease. But if by some miracle, by, by the grace of God, they were touched and they believed that they were being cured, they were being healed, 
then they would send word back to the camp that, that I think I've been healed. And, and it would be up to one of the priests to come out and to inspect them. And, and if after the inspection, it's true, it does look like for some reason, by some miracle, by the grace of God, this, this person has been healed. The leprosy is clearing up. Who can explain such things? But yes, they're being healed. They would, they would go through a little bit of a process of being cleansed. And here is here's kind of a kind of a way they would do it. You would you would grab two birds, and uh, one of these birds would would be killed and sacrificed, and its blood would drip into a bowl of water, and together with with hyssop leaves, the live bird would be dipped into the water, dunked into the water. Now imagine, it probably wouldn't be very happy about this. So when it comes out, it's flat, be flapping its wings, you can just imagine, and it would spray, it would sprinkle all of the water, and yes, the, the blood of the first bird, whose life has has now passed, would sprinkle over this person as a symbol of their cleansing, that, that by sacrifice they have been cleansed. And then the second bird would be set free. It lives. Now for somebody who had been sick with, with leprosy, who probably expected to die from it and and actually probably expected to die a lonely death, away from friends and away from family. There was really no hope for such a person. For that person to, to now all of a sudden be healed, it really would be like, I was like that dead bird. I was as good as dead. But look, now actually... <laughs> I've been given a second chance. I'm like the bird that lives, the bird that has just been set free. I've been given a second chance. Wow, how blessed am I. And that person too, just like the Levitical priest who has been set apart for a special position, that person who had been healed and set apart for life, they too would be anointed with oil. They are, the, they are the two within the Old Testament most significant anointings with oil that we have. In the New Testament, we have some similar examples. We have in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9, Jesus himself is anointed with oil for a special position, for special service. On this occasion, he's anointed with oil because he is going to serve the purposes of his father by going to the cross, dying on behalf of mankind and taking your sin and my sin upon himself. That's what he would do. That was a special service, a special position that only he as the son of God could uniquely fulfill. For that, he was anointed with oil. But it seems also in the church, the early church, that there were other occasions, a little bit like the other Old Testament example in James chapter 5.14, where if somebody is sick, if they're ill, if they are not well, 
Then they are to ask the elders to come around them and to use oil and to bless them and to, and to pray for them. We actually did that this morning in a very, very special service. We invited, we invited families with children who were not thriving. Some of them had allergies. Others had serious, serious tumors on the brain. We invited all of them to come back. And, and actually, that's why there's a little bit more room at the front this evening, because this morning it was filled with people. And we had a very special time of anointing those little ones and blessing them and praying for, for their health, just as James commands us to do. There's another occurrence in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, where through the anointing of oil, it becomes a symbol for gladness and, and well-being. So it seems that anointing by oil is a way of indicating that somebody has been marked by God, marked for God, for his special purposes, and that that person is or will be the recipient of grace from heaven. That God in his graciousness will reach down and he will touch them in a special way. Touch them and anoint them and prepare them and, and equip them for a special position or some sort of special service, or touch them, anoint them, and heal them and help their well being so that they can be all that God originally intended them to be. Either way, it seems that anointing with oil becomes a symbol, a very, a very beautiful symbol for somebody who has been marked by God, marked for God, touched by the grace of God. And the, interestingly, in the Old Testament, we don't do this in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, this is the way they would do it. Firstly, they, they, would, take, they would take oil, and whether it was the priest or whether it was the leper who had been healed, they would take oil and they would firstly touch their right ear. And then they would, they would touch their right thumb. And then they would touch the big toe on their right foot. We don't do that very often today, do we? Has anyone done that today? I don't know. I, I thought the chances were slim. It's a bit of an odd thing. What is it symbolizing? What is it saying? Well, by the time you've touched the ear, the thumb and the toe, you've, you've kind of covered the whole person, haven't you? From, from, as we would say, from head to toe. The whole of the person has, has been anointed with oil. And anointing would seem to suggest that whilst we might only apply oil to, you know, to one, two, maybe three parts of the body, we're really saying, may the whole of you be touched with the grace of God for this special position or for this, for this healing that God wants to give you. But in response to that, there is this invitation as well. And I don't think it's stretching things too far to suggest that the invitation is for the person who has been anointed by God, the whole person anointed by God, that that person should be wholly given over to God. As a result of receiving a touch from God, the best response is to give oneself back to God and say, God, who am I? that you would bless me? Who am I that you would touch me? Who am I that you would anoint me? Who am I that you would touch me with your grace? Wow. What can I say? What can I do? What, how do I respond to that? And, and the response would seem to be, well, you have touched my whole person. Let my whole person be wholly yours. 
Let me give all of myself to you. Let me be a, the sort of person now who, who only hears your voice, who listens to that audience of one, who follows your commands, not the obligations and commands of other people. There are many, many voices in our lives and many voices in society. But as for me, I will just listen to you. I'm yours. I'm your servant. My ears and my understanding and my mind and my discernment belongs to you. I will hear only your voice and your voice alone. And as for my hands, I will do your bidding. I will act for you wholeheartedly. Whatever it is that, that you ask of me, whatever service that you require, it's yours. I wholeheartedly give myself over to act for you. And, and where shall I serve you? Where shall I go? I will go wherever you want me to go. These feet are your feet. If you say, I want you here, I am, I am there. If you, are, you want me here, then I am there. Wherever you want me to go to serve you, I am your servant, willing to hear from you, to act for you, and to go wherever it is that you ask me to go. You have anointed my whole person. You have touched me with grace. And now I give my whole self back to you. That seems to be the nature of anointing. And so we're left with this question. What about today? What does that mean for you and for I? And what does that mean for you and I this week? In 1 John chapter, chapter 2, the Apostle John in the New Testament here now is talking, to, is talking to the church, a bewildered church, mind you. He's one of the last of the Apostles. And into the church is creeping all sorts of weird teachings, to be quite honest. And as one of the last of the apostles who can testify to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in that he was there, he saw it. He, lies, he was literally there when Jesus was crucified. He saw the empty grave and met the risen Lord. He was one of the last apostles who could actually say that and say, yeah, I saw it with my own eyes. You can call me a liar. You can do whatever you want. But I was there. And now, as kind of like a, a patriarch of the church, a church that is in disarray, that has been persecuted and scattered, a church with which false teaching and so forth is, is infiltrating the flock, there this... I, I just want to call him the super shepherd because I love John. There this super shepherd has this incredible encouragement that all will be well. And what is it? It's this. He is writing to people who have been anointed. They have been touched by God's grace. He writes, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. Chapter 2, verse 20. And all of you know the truth. He goes on and in verse 24, he says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And in verse 27, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. 
Now, that doesn't mean you just quickly all get up and go out now as if you don't need anyone to teach you. What that means is that the Spirit of God will be your teacher. There are various instruments within the body of Christ that he may use from time to time. But every now and again, I might get something wrong. It happened once. No, I was wrong about that. It's never happened. No, I was wrong about that. It has. Well, it's happened twice. I might get something wrong from time to time. But the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. That's my confidence as pastor. And John says, that anointing that you have, it teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, it's not counterfeit. It's real just as it has taught you. Remain in him. Abide in him. I am so encouraged by by that. But John here is talking about an anointing that is upon all of God's children, sons and daughters alike, all of those who have at one time raised their hand and said, you know what, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you did die in my place. I believe that the old me has been crucified with you. When did I die? A couple of thousand years ago. That me is long gone. The new me, the me that exists because of your resurrection, well, that life I have because of you. You died, you rose again, and as you did, so did I. I too was raised to a brand new life. Those people, everyone who was called upon the name of the Lord, you have an anointing. We picture it, and I mentioned this this morning, um, most vividly perhaps through baptism. We often talk, and I, I, I love to, I, sorry, I, this is one thing I cannot tire of, the powerful symbolism of baptism. We did one a couple of weeks ago, but it is such a picture No wonder Jesus commands us to to do it and for every follower to be baptised. But imagine this picture again as we, we have seen it visually played out before us many, many times on this stage. We've got the big black bathtub um, filled with water. The person who knows that Jesus has transformed their life forever steps into it and says, Let me show you outwardly what has happened inwardly to my life. They step forward towards the end of the bathtub so that when we dunk them, we don't hit their head. They hop down and they confess that Jesus is their Saviour and Lord. They make that confession to, to tell us what it is, what decision, what transaction has gone on inside them. And, and then we say, well, Just according to Scripture, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we baptise you according to the confession that you have just made. And then we symbolise it. We said, you've just confessed that Jesus is your Saviour. That is, he died for you and you died with him. Well, let's just illustrate that now, shall we? And you know us Baptists, we love water. We tell everybody who's getting baptised, do you have your scuba licence? Prepare to get wet, very wet. We hold them down, as you know, for 10, sometimes 15 minutes. No, we don't. But we love to symbolise the death. Yes, just as Christ died, you died. Down you go. You, 
like it's, 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 it's like buried. Now, we don't preach the sermon at this point because it gets very uncomfortable for them down there. But we do love to, to just wet them, and I'll tell you why in a moment, and then bring them up out of the water. Water spraying everywhere, the more the better. But to bring them up as if you were dead, but look at this, you were being raised with Christ to a brand new life. Look at you. You are a new person. And what's different about that person in that moment? I mean, actually, not not symbolically different. What is literally physically different? They're, They're wet. They're really, really wet. They're saturated which is the third element that we just can't miss. And that is that they are just covered from head to toe in water. Just like being covered from head to toe with the anointing of God. It's like this is a bath full of grace And we have just watched somebody die to their old life, raise up to a brand new life. Now they are born again, but they are different. They are wet. They are covered in water, just as we believe inwardly they are covered in grace. That's the anointing that all of God's children have. If you are his child, that's the anointing that you have upon you. The problem is that the symbolism disappears because we quickly take a towel and so that we can be sociable afterwards, we dry off. We change our clothes even. Crazy. The next day we go to work or school or uni, wherever, in dry clothes and we're missing the symbolism. But the inner reality is the same. You have an anointing upon you and you now know the truth, the truth that has set you free. That anointing is real and it is upon you. It is as if you have been like a sponge in a bucket of water. You have been dipped into God. Just as you bring out the sponge and it's soaked and dripping wet, is, is the sponge in the water or is the water in the sponge? Is Christ in you or are you in Christ? Both are true, yes. You are now being united with Christ saturated in grace, enabled to live a very, very different life. The code has been cracked for you. So perhaps one last thought on anointing for tonight will be, okay, it's anointing in the Old Testament, anointing in the New Testament. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that anointing upon you. Is that it? Because in some Christian circles, we talk about more, greater anointing. Maybe even we use terminology like a second baptism. What what is that about? Well, I would say you don't need to be literally baptized a second time. We don't do that. The symbol only needs to be made once, once and for all. But is it possible that there can be a fresh touch of the Spirit of God upon the life of a Christian? I'd say yes. Is it possible that in the the day-to-day monotony of life and busyness and so forth, God gets pushed out and a little bit like a, 
A glass of water that sat on the bench and was, was full a week ago is now just diminished somewhat because of the evaporative effects of life. Is it possible that our, that our cup may no longer be overflowing? I'd say yes. Is it possible when Paul says that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit and it's in the present continuous sense, meaning that somehow it's, an, it's a once and for all, but, a, but an ongoing kind of a, kind of a deal. Is it, is it possible that, that like cups of water, we, we are designed to be permanently placed under the tap where the filling of, of God's Spirit is kind of a, a, a permanent experience helping us to overflow for all time, always aligned with Him, always experience, experiencing His presence filling us and overflowing and and flowing out to others, I'd say yes. I'd say that's a brilliant way of thinking about it. Is it possible that having, having been away, unaligned from God and, and away from, from his blessing and the flow of his presence and having experienced the evaporative effects of life from time to time and, and just feeling a little bit dry in our Christian life, is it? Is it possible that were we to be realigned with God and filled once more with the wonder and the joy of his presence, that we might describe that of, as like being baptised all over again? Well, yes. But don't just settle for a second baptism or as Michael Green famously once said, or a third or a fourth or a fifth. And mind you, he was Anglican. They don't do as much water as we do. <laughs> But go for every experience of God that, that he has for you. Simply open yourself up to God and say, God, if you have more for me, then I am the most glad recipient on the face of the earth. Please, whatever you have for me, Heavenly Father, you only give good, good, good gifts to your children, do you not? How much more those who ask for the Holy Spirit? Please bless your child. Flow over me again. Flow through me again. Do a work in me once more. I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you may have for me. That's what I would say of anointing for us tonight. And lastly, because we are a bit Baptist and we love our water, is it time for you to take the plunge again? Has it been a while since you truly encountered a, the touch of God's grace upon your life in its fullness? Do you secretly suspect, although you know Jesus has cracked the code for life, do you secretly suspect that somehow you may have drifted and there's, there's more for you than what is your current experience? Then tonight I would invite you to come to him once more and to be the recipient of whatever it is, whatever gift of anointing, fresh anointing that God might have for you. You can trust him. He's your father and he only gives good gifts. Let's pray. And with those last words just echoing around our minds and hearts, Lord, 
You only give good gifts to your children. We would just dare to ask once more, have you got anything else for us tonight? Is there anything more that you would like to do in our lives? Is there healing that you want to perform? Is there a special service that you would like to call us to and empower us for? Do you have something for us tonight? And if you have never yet called upon the name of Jesus, perhaps our little mini explanation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ tonight has struck a chord in your heart, just, just perhaps. And maybe, maybe tonight you would like to say, this is the night that I give my heart unreservedly to God. This is the night that I receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. Understanding that it's not what I have to do for God. That's religion. Let's not have a part of that. But it's what God has done for me. If you have come to understand that tonight for the first time, perhaps you would like to also receive as a gift from God the gift of salvation. Lord, lead us now as we, as we meditate upon these things, as we now lift our voices in song once more. Would you help us to respond in a way that blesses your heart? We ask this in your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.